Hello, this is The Bunker, broadcasting on 275 and 285 on the medium wave. It's 70s week, with rail strikes coming, teacher strikes probably following, out-of-control inflation, fuel crises, and ABBA are massive again. This is Start Your Week. I'm Andrew Harrison, and here to prepare for the three-day week and power cuts, it's Gavin Esler, former BBC Washington correspondent and now Chancellor of the University of Kent. Hi, Gavin. How are you? Hi. Good morning. I'm, I'm in a quite a good mood. I'm looking out at some trees. Uh, I'm down in Kent, which is a beautiful county. And I've been in in the past week in Scotland, which is a beautiful country. I've been in Yorkshire, which is also a beautiful country. And I'm thinking, what a wonderful country we live in. And then, of course, I listen to the news and things go go a bit (laughs) pear-shaped after that. So you're not getting your candles in and preparing for uh, television shutting down at nine o'clock and things like that. Yeah, Uh, maybe. hmm. Let's start with these rail strikes then. They're going to be the biggest in 30 years. Three staggered days of walkouts starting tomorrow, Tuesday. Um, We've had several generations without the mass strikes that uh, we were used to in the 70s. And if you're as old as me and you, Gavin, we can just about remember it. Is the country prepared for this? And more importantly, how am I going to get to Glastonbury? Uh, I don't know how you're going to get to Glastonbury. You could always thumb a lift. That would be very 1970s, wouldn't it? Um, uh, Hmm. uh, In terms of the country prepared for it, no, not really. But, you know, I think almost anything that I'm going to say today could begin with the phrase uh, or the sentence, uh, we've had 12 years now of Conservative government. Do you feel any better off? Keir Starmer, if you're listening, there you go. You can talk about that for the next two years. Because uh, not only do we have the second lowest growth rate on the G20 next to Russia, Russia's keep propping us up, we are the second bottom, but we have got people... Uh, who are looking at 11% inflation and thinking, this is going to be a terrible winter for me. And they are saying, we have the right to strike. And they have got the right to strike. And it's very difficult for people on six-figure salaries and others, including the the people in the Bank of England, to say, uh, you don't have the right to strike. You you should not be doing this. Uh, Government ministers who are not directly involved in this, because I I suspect they think it puts Keir Starman in an embarrassing position, really should get involved and actually have a think about what we need in this country. And something tells me that maybe a lot of people have now come to the conclusion that 12 years of Conservative government isn't working. There's another good slogan for Keir Starmer. Yeah. Um, The RNC is striking over pay and also plans to reform the rail industry to take account of the the hit that COVID has put on commuter revenues. Um, It is actually quite hard to know how public support stands. There doesn't seem to be any reliable polling on it. Do you think that there is support in the country for the rail strikes, considering that we haven't, you know, it's not like we're at the end of months and months and years and years of strikes as we were in the 1970s? I I suspect that many people... Immediate, their immediate reaction is uh, we don't support rail strikes because it's going to inconvenience us and it inconveniences me terribly, I think, and you if you're trying to get to Glastonbury. I think on the other hand, you know, my wife was talking on a platform to, to one of the rail workers trying to uh, m- make a connection. And that rail worker said to her, you know, we all fear for our jobs. We think that automation means there'll be nobody like me standing on a platform helping someone like you. Now, if that message gets through, people perhaps will become more sympathetic. Um, you mentioned the idea that the government is actually possibly quite happy that this is taking place. Um, do you, what, what do you think it is going to mean for Starmer? I mean, he's accused the government of wanting the strikes as a distraction from their troubles. They've tried to paint it as Labour's strike. Well, well it's certainly not. it's very difficult to see it as Labour's strike. I mean, I know that I know that the sort of conservative 
tomorrow headline machine is very good at this kind of stuff. But Labour haven't been in power for 12 years. You know, it's certainly not Starmer's strike. Uh, what Starmer says or doesn't say uh, isn't going to have much, much effect, it seems to me. And also what we are seeing is that the Conservative playbook, because we have had 12 years of failure, now seems to be reduced to them and us. There is no one speaking for the country as a whole. It's all divisive stuff. It's cultures, culture wars, nonsense. And it is now, yeah, Yabu sucks labor in favor of strikes. It's going to be Keir Starmer's fault if you can't get to Manchester tomorrow. Um, and it works for some people, unfortunately. But we have to, re- that's why I keep repeating 12 years of the same government. Are you any better off? And I don't think we are. It's coming right after what the Conservatives have been referring to internally as Wedge Week uh, with the Rwanda flights, where they were in a a sort of horrible win-win position where if it happened, their policy was supposedly vindicated. uh, And then if what happened actually did happen, i.e. the flights were uh, stopped by the intervention of the European Court of Human Rights, they win too. Um, They seem to be doubling down on this this divisive stuff. Are are the RMT handing them material, do you think? Uh, That is possible. But the, again, the RMT, I don't speak for them, but they, their duty is to represent their workers. And if their workers feel that they are being shortchanged, literally, and in a bad way, um, you know, it's up to them what, what they do. And to be honest, you know, I just wonder if anybody listening feels any better off if three or four or seven people go to Rwanda. I mean, do you really feel better off because of that? I'm not sure you do. And and it's, it is apparently a good issue for the Conservatives. But at some point, and maybe it will be be this week because we will see what voters in the north of England and in the the southwest of England think of this Conservative government, um, it it may be that that is running out of steam because we have constantly had this kind of, uh, you know, government by slogan uh, that we're going to have levelling up and so on. Are we levelled up? Well, I'm not sure we are really. It's going to be interesting to see uh, how you put together a story about uh, you know terribly inconvenienced commuters and uh, rail chaos misery when we've all had two years of learning how to work very efficiently from home, or lots of us have anyway, those of us in the commuter world. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure how the government will handle it. In the end, the government has to act as if it can govern. And that has been that has been the problem throughout. They have got lots of policies and slogans and ideas. And you know when Boris Johnson is lying, when the word plan appears in any sentence. You know, the plan is for 44 new hospitals. The plan is for 20,000 more police officers when the Conservatives cut 20,000 police officers. Now, I'm not speaking on behalf of the Labour Party or anybody else, but I just think... When I when I travel up and down this country, I just think how wonderful we are, really. So many good things about us. So so many helpful people who who want to solve problems, not to create them. And then you come back into the world of the daily headlines and the kind of manipulation of those headlines by a few quite smart people in Downing Street, um, which, as, as I say, works for some people, but is increasingly tiresome for the rest of us. Well, I mean, that one of those particular. Uh... Uh, typical playbook things is going to get tested if there are school and NHS strikes. Uh, the National Education Union and Unison for the NHS are both probably going to ballot their members. Unless they're going to pay off a near to inflation, which is currently 9.2%, they're not going to get anywhere near that. Is it possible for the old playbook of union greed to work when people understand there is a real cost of living crisis and people really are short of money? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that is going to be very difficult for the Conservatives. I mean, you know, this is this is the party of clap for carers and not actually give them a reasonable increase in terms of NHS nurses and others, you know, and we are very sympathetic to them. What they what it seems is happening, however, is an attempt to blame doctors for, for, for not working hard enough or to blame other doctors for, for, for retiring er- early and quitting, blaming people in the health service for failure. What are we going to do na- next? Uh, blame school teachers for the fact that classes are too big. I mean, people didn't talk that way uh, right up to 2010 because the Labour Party invested a great deal of money in our schools in England and uh, since 1997. So... Uh, people perhaps have got short memories and it may, again, as I I keep saying, it may work in in the short term, but at some point you would think uh, there is an issue for Keir Starmer to seize, but he doesn't seem to be cutting through in quite the way uh, he would ho- he had hoped up to now. So so we'd have to see. I mean, it seems to me he has been very cautious and he could be braver. Most listeners will know we've got two massive by-elections this week. Uh, The Conservatives are are expected to take a bit of a pounding in both of them. There's Wakefield, which is a key red wall constituency, and there is Tiverton and Hoddington, a.k.a. Tractor Porn West. Um, In Wakefield, did you enjoy the Conservative candidate pointing out that people still trust doctors after Harold Shipman, so why shouldn't they support the Conservatives after Imran Khan? Bold comms move. Yeah, I I just... I did wonder, where do we get these people? I mean, where do we get Chris Grayling? Where do we get Nadine Doris as a cabinet minister? We get them because we get them as candidates. And and this is a a, a particularly (laughs) interesting one. I think Labour will take Wakefield. Uh, Whether the Lib Dems can overturn more than 20,000 Conservative majority in Tiverton, uh, I don't know. And I don't think they know, but they're working very hard to it. I think this is a chance for people to say, we don't we don't like this government, and there is a possibility that the Conservatives will lose both seats. At which point, Boris Johnson will say, "Nothing to see here. Time to move on. We've got other things on our agenda." So I don't I don't think it necessarily means he's going to go any any time soon. Um, but it will be a very very important test of public opinion, obviously. The Tiverton and Honiton uh, Conservative candidate, Helen Herford, was booed for dodging questions about Johnson's honesty. Um, her, her fantastic quote over the weekend was, Boris Johnson thinks he's honest. Yeah. Which is... Yeah, ex- exactly. And, and, and just also, just take one step back for a minute. Why are we having these two, two by-elections? We're having the two by-elections because the previous incumbent, conservative incumbent in Wakefield, ended up uh, being convicted of sexual assault and because the incumbent in Tiverton was trying to search for tractors and uh, in the House of Commons on his phone and ended up looking at porn, a mistake obviously anybody, any of us could make. So this is a party which is riven by scandal absolutely riven by scandal and you know the old adage of the fish rots from its head the news has been so terrible for the conservatives on both of these by-elections is it a situation where anything except a complete rout will now be presented as a, as a success by the conservatives as we've turned the corner yeah i think that that obviously that's what they've decided and they keep saying we've moved on but actually we haven't moved on you know that is that mm-hmm. is the key thing um there is no way of moving on from 11% inflation. There is no way of moving on for the things that particularly people on lower incomes often find they spend their money on on pasta and cheaper foods, which have gone up more than 11%, as Jack Monroe and other campaigners rightly say. So we're, we're, we're just not moving on. Um, 
as I mentioned, the Conservatives think that Wedge Week was an enormous success for them. There are no Rwanda extradition flights scheduled for this week, as far as I can see. But one person is going to Rwanda, and that's Prince Charles. He's attending the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting in Kigali. Apparently, he thinks Britain's new policy on asylum seekers is going to poison this event. Uh, do you think he's right? Is he going to take a kicking for it, for the government's behaviour? Well, I think there's a there's a lot of uh, issues tied up in that there. I think Prince Charles will be treated with respect. I think, however, that uh, we are about to enter an era where Prince Charles becomes King Charles, the post-Elizabethan era. And in that era... Uh, People will say, what's the point of the Commonwealth? What is the point of having, as Jamaica is saying and other countries are saying, and Canada may say, and uh, Australia has said before, what is the point of the Commonwealth in the 21st century? And what is the point of having a head of state who is uh, happens to be the monarch of the United Kingdom? So that to me is the big picture. And I think he will be, of course, he will be treated with great respect. Whether the government's policy is treated with much respect, I, I, I don't know. But again, that will be used as part of the culture wars. It's only, uh, you know, if he, if Prince Charles really did say this policy is appalling, maybe people people will um, congratulate him. Um, taking a look at some of the other stories we expect to see in the course of the week. Obviously, Ukraine, uh, the Battle of Kramatorsk is looming. The Guardian calls it the last significant city in Moscow's drive to take the Donbass. Um, you were at a conference about the war at the weekend. Um, what stood out for you about what's uh, what's coming down the line? Yeah, I was in York for the... Um, uh, it was a, a conference about ideas, about big ideas, and there was quite a lot of talk, as you can imagine, about Ukraine. We had people from, you know, we had Italian diplomats and people from the Middle East and all sorts of uh, all sorts of people. We also had some very eloquent speaker, a very eloquent speaker from Ukraine itself. There were a number of themes. Um, one basic theme, which most people agreed on, was uh, Putin must not win, whatever that means, and Ukraine certainly must not lose, again, whatever that means. Uh, but there was a great fear among some in the in the audience that the United States in particular may become bored with this conflict if it drags on for a long time, because it's very, very difficult when you ask people, how do you see this ending? Or even, what does Putin really want that is realizable? Um, there were very many uh, sort of eloquent uh, possibilities, but nobody has any any firm ideas. It is certainly true that uh, one of the, we all know, that one of the amazing things that Putin has done is he's managed to unite broadly the European Union and the West uh, in a way that has not that it has not been united since the time of, you know, Khrushchev and, and uh, the various Soviet leaders. Where this goes and whether we have the stamina, we the West, in the stamina to keep supporting Ukraine in the way that we have been, that was the big question. My answer to that is I think we do, because we realize in Britain and elsewhere that that is our front line. Um, but how it ends, nobody knows. And some have suggested, you know, we may have some kind of armed peace like like the border between North Korea and South Korea. Others suggested, uh, and this was a, a more difficult thing to swallow, that the United States tilt towards the Pacific and worries about China and Taiwan mean that in a year or two, the Americans will slowly uh, shift their, their focus. The one thing I would say is this, this is very different from, uh, from the United States and say Afghanistan, where they pulled out because they felt after 20 years, any loss of American lives 
uh, however small, was was unacceptable. There's no American lives directly in the front line here. This is American uh, equipment, or at least American, what should you say, uh, power behind the scenes. So um, there's no simple answer to this, obviously. That That's what, I, what I'm trying to say. But the question is whether we have the stamina and what it says about us if we are truly part of Europe, even if we're not part of the European Union, to continue to support Ukraine. Well, uh, Ukraine's own application to join the EU is up before the European Council this week, so that uh, that could be interesting. Um, elsewhere, the SNP is pushing for a second independence referendum, a softer consultative referendum to get past Westminster stonewalling a binding legal vote. Um, what do you think of this, Gavin? You are a Scottish person. What's your take? Well, um, I happen to be in the Scottish borders uh, at uh, Melrose and uh, the Borders Book Festival, and there were a number of politicians there and everybody's politically engaged about this and of course there are two views the the view from those of a broadly unionist persuasion is what on earth is the first minister doing uh, this doesn't make any sense why is she doing it uh, those of a of a, a scottish nationalist persuasion and and i don't just mean snp i mean people who would vote for independence are very cheered by this there was one point of agreement i have to say which is, and this comes from people who are conservatives too in Scotland, that Boris Johnson is possibly the secret weapon of Nicola Sturgeon because he is so loathed uh, in Scotland and so loathed within the Conservative Party in Scotland. And I have talked to quite prominent conservatives who say this, but they're not quite so keen in putting it in words uh, publicly. So he may be the best recruiting sergeant uh, for Nicola Sturgeon. Whether this happens and how it happens and how uh, you know what the mechanism is, I don't, I, I don't know. But uh, people, uh, almost everybody, thought that this is a deliberate by Sturgeon to make sure that there's some kind of vote while Boris Johnson is in Downing Street. Uh- Elsewhere in France, Macron and his centrists have lost their absolute majority, down from down 100 seats to 245 in the National Assembly. Politico is predicting five years of gridlock with uh, Macron squeezed between Mélenchon's left and the far-right national rally. Uh, what do you think, Gavin? Well, I'm no expert on, uh, on French politics, but I suggest that Macron might say, well, we just have to move on. You know, it seems to be the flavour of the month. Um, you know, it is, it is what it is. He, he will have to deal with a legislature which is broadly hostile to, uh, to his views. However, you know, when it comes to the crunch uh, in terms of uh, support for Ukraine, in terms of being a, playing a very active player within the European Union, and considering how the European Union will develop, there is a sort of coalition of interests in France. Uh, whether this means that given inflation and all the other pressures that the French economy have, they will have a more exciting time because their their trade unions tend to be a little bit more flamboyant than ours, let's put it that way. So uh, there may be another winter of discontent coming in France too. One thing that definitely uh, came out of it is it puts pay to the idea that Marine Le Pen was finished as a political force after losing uh, the presidential election. The yeah. um, national rally did really well, unfortunately. Yeah, they they did. And Mélenchon did really well. So some of these characters, uh, they just keep on coming because they've moved on too. Shall we finish with the bizarre disappearing story of Carrie Johnson's foreign office job in the Times yesterday. Uh, the Times, or over the weekend rather, the Times reported claims that Boris Johnson tried to hire her as his chief of staff before they were married when he was foreign secretary. Uh, the story appeared in the Times and then vanished from both the Times and the Mail. Uh, you can only see it by uh, screenshots that are circulating on social media. 
What's going on, Gavin? I wish I knew, but I I, I think also, uh, forgive me, that it's the dog that didn't bark. If you had that story and you felt it was true, even if number 10 denied it, and there are things that number mm. 10 has denied, which we know are not true, um, see man with bottle and glass in hand, um, uh, wouldn't you put that on page one? But you didn't put it on page yeah. one, but you did run it and then you took it away again. What on earth is going on? I have no idea. I have no idea. Uh, you know, there are such things as super injunctions, which means that you get an injunction against the publication of something and people are not allowed even to report that there is an injunction. Whether that's the case, I have no idea. Well, do you want to know the really bizarre thing? This story is taken from Lord Ashcroft's book, which came out ages ago and it was serialized in, guess where? The Mail. <laughs> So the story has already been out there ages ago in the mail, which has now pulled it pulled the story from its own website. Uh, it's very very strange. Well, I I would I would return to an old favourite of mine, which is that if you allow very significant sections of the British press to be owned by people who are not resident in this country or not resident for tax purposes, this is the kind of press you get. And on that note. That's the end of Start Your Week for this week. Thank you, Gavin, for getting up early. You may now go and queue for petrol. <laughs> Thank you. I'll go and stand and get some train tickets. All right, bye. Listeners, remember, podcasts are an essential service and you can keep us going in these dark days by backing us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month or even a page of Green Shield stamps. You'll get early episodes without adverts, you'll get merchandise, you'll get lots more. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. Uh, enjoy your non-existent commute. The Bunker Start Your Week was hosted by Andrew Harrison with Gavin Esler. Audio production came from me, Robin Lieburn. Producer was Jelena Sofronevich. Lead producer, Jacob Jarvis. And group editor is Andrew Harrison. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.